Second John. It's written by John, the son of Zebedee. In his gospel, he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. He was the one that Jesus entrusted the care of his own mother with. When I asked people what uh, they thought my topic would be for Mother's Day, that was a popular idea. He was one of the twelve, but he was also one of the three who were with Jesus in a deeper way. They were there at the Transfiguration and at other times. This man was the last living apostle. At this point, it's about 90 A.D., Christ has been gone for something approaching 60 years. He's living in Ephesus. He's an elder, not only to the church in Ephesus, perhaps an elder to all true churches throughout the world. And now he writes to one of them, and he calls her mother. And he writes to her children, the believers. He chooses this metaphor for the church because it is perfect. Like a mother, the church incubates those who will come to life in Christ. Like a mother, the church nurtures baby Christians, comforting them, instructing them, disciplining them, feeding them on the pure milk of the word. Like a mother, the church trains up her children, instructing them in how to live and how to walk. She encourages them as they take steps of faith. She picks them up when they stumble. She admonishes them when they sin. She, disciplines, she disciples them to teach them all that Christ has commanded. And she trains them for a day, not when they won't need her, but for the day when they will pass on everything that they have been taught by her. And when one of them becomes a mother herself, she passes on wisdom, she prays for her, she continues to support her in any way necessary. And when one of her children walks away, she prays for them, she seeks to restore them to the family, but she absolutely will not be disobedient so as to destroy the family. She protects the other children from the rebellious influence of the prodigal. And when they return, she rejoices as any mother's heart would. Yes, the church is a mother to every believer. And John loves her, not as the world loves, but as God loves in truth. And everyone else who knows the truth of God in Jesus Christ loves her in the same way and for the same reason. She is a precious mother whose job is fraught with difficulty. There is nothing easy about being a mother. Her job is often thankless. She toils in anonymity. Her reward often feels far off. She seems to give far more than she receives, and her children can at times neglect her and take her for granted. But the reward of seeing mature children who walk well in life, the reward of knowing that her husband... Jesus Christ is well pleased with her, that he calls her beautiful, that he tells her she is his love. This is a reward beyond all measure. Because of the ongoing difficulties of her vocation, John reminds her of the grace, the mercy, and the peace which are hers from God through Christ, who is her Savior and her husband. He emphasizes not that she has them presently, or that she's had them in the past, but that she most certainly will have them in the future. There's no greater encouragement and comfort that he can give than to, for her to know that she is not alone. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to provide all that she needs. And so there's no cause for anxiety. 
This grace, mercy, and peace are hers because of who her husband is. But they are not hers in any casual way, nor are they a thing to be taken for granted. These are the precious gifts of God which he purchased for her at a tremendous cost. And they are hers in truth and in love. They are freely given, but they are certainly not free. They are the most costly gift in the universe. And so she is to treasure them, honor them, appreciate them, and never take them for granted. These are the gifts of love. And now, having encountered some of her children about in the world, living and walking well as their mother taught them, John is beyond pleased. You always hope that the children will do well when the parents are not around. But to see it in action moves the heart. So John finds occasion to write to her, both commending her for the job that she has already done and encouraging her in the work still to be done and giving a warning to her of what will happen if she is lax. This small book contains an introduction, which I just preached, by the way, if you missed that. Uh, three imperatives. That word just means commands. He gives us three commands, and then three indicatives. Those are the reasons for the commands, and then finally a conclusion. So I'm a good Baptist. You know what you're getting. The three commands are this. Love one another, which means to follow all of God's commands. Watch yourselves. That's plural. And don't invite a false teacher into your home or even greet them. What's interesting is that even though these commands seem like they have very little to do with each other, they all have almost the exact same indicative or same reason for the commands so that souls would not be lost to false teachings about Christ. You put all that together and you have one main truth for the text. You ready? This is what you write down. This is what you take home. You don't forget it. How you live out your Christian faith impacts the entire church. How you live out your Christian faith impacts the entire church. This is life together. So point number one, love one another by obeying God's commands. I'm going to pick up in verse five. And the word says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Notice that's plural. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. He begins with this idea of an original commandment. And that commandment is to love one another. He writes about that. All of the other gospel writers write about that. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six is where we're going to get probably the most clear teaching on what this, this original commandment is. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what's the greatest commandment? He tells them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And there's another one right there, 1A and 1B, and it's love your neighbor as yourself. 
And everything else depends on these. Everything else points to these. So what is that telling us? It tells us if you fulfill the two, if you love your God in that way, and if you love your neighbors yourself, you will fulfill all of the others. You will not break any of the Ten Commandments. You will not break any of the other commandments that were given. And it tells us that if you fulfill all the others, if you can live a perfect life, you will fulfill the first two. You will love God in that way, and you will love your neighbor in that way. Of course, none of us have, right? But there is one. Jesus Christ. Perfectly loved God. Perfectly loved his neighbor. Fulfilled all of the other commandments because we couldn't. Right? He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All of these are interconnected. So we can't pick and choose which ones we want to obey. Church, believers, to love him is to obey them all. You don't get to say, well, I'm not going to steal today. I'm not going to lust today. But, uh, you know, that person's really got me upset. I might, I might do a little murder. And you can't say, well, I'm not going to murder. I'm, I'm not going to steal. But, you know, yeah, I lie a lot. It's not that big. No, if you break one, you break them all. If you break one, you're not loving your neighbor. If you break one, you're not loving your God. And we are told to be holy as he is holy. We can't pick and choose which one we'll obey. To love him is to obey them all. To love our neighbor is to obey them all. Now, maybe we think of loving God as obeying his commands, right? He loves, we love him. He loves us. What he says for us is good, so let's do it. We can get behind that, right? It gives me something to do. I'm a doer. I'm a fixer. I like it. Give me a list. But how many of us think of obeying his commands as loving our neighbor? Do you think that way? A murder, adultery, stealing, lying, coveting, as, as long as we don't do this towards our neighbor, we think that we're loving them. We think that we're fulfilling the commands. If we do them at all, we're not loving our neighbor. And how is that? Because the context is the family of God. Now, what is, here's what I'm saying. If I lie what, and you don't know about it, what does it matter to you? And if I lie to Chuck, what does that matter to Billy? And if I steal from David, what does it matter to somebody who walks in the door and doesn't know me from Adam? It matters greatly because I am not fulfilling the command by, because I'm not loving my neighbor. The context here is the family of God. It's all of us together. And so when we do these things, we hurt the family of God. We hurt the other children. We hurt our mother. We grieve her heart. We grieve the whole church. We know that we grieve the heart of God, but church, we are supposed to grieve. When one of us falls into sin, we are supposed to grieve. We are supposed to pray for their redemption. We are supposed to confront their sin and care about them. We are supposed to restore them. We're supposed to set a good example and to encourage one another. This is not individuals running around playing bumper cars between the pews. This is life together. Think about what Paul says. 
We are one body. Fingers, toes, ears, hands, eyes, feet. If one of us is hurt, we are all hurting. If one of us is missing, we're missing that one. The context is the family of God. We hurt the family name. We hurt the family reputation. We can cause others to stumble, to question, to doubt. We can cause doubts and insecurities among those who are weak. Or who have only just shown signs of coming to faith. They're the most vulnerable. The seed has been planted, but there are no leaves yet. There's no fruit. And most importantly, there's no root yet. We open the door for the enemy to attack like a bird and take that seed away. Mothers, you love your children by living a life that is consistent with the Word of God. You got that? You, live, you love your children by living a life consistent with the Word of God. It is not about what you buy them, what you give them, your hugs, your kisses, your anything. The most important thing you can do, mothers, to love your children is to show them a life devoted to God and to be consistent by loving God more than you love your family. That doesn't make sense to America. We put the children first in everything. Then hopefully the husband, maybe there's a little room left for God. God says it is God above everything. Above the family, even. We do this by demonstrating to our children that God really is the most important thing in your life. It means that we don't miss church to go to fill in the blank. We don't go to basketball practices on Wednesday. We don't go to tournaments out of town on Sunday. Just because family came to visit doesn't mean we don't go to church. In fact, family came to visit. Good, let's go to church. They need Jesus. I've met some of your family. They need Jesus. Oh, well, point here. Point right back at me. My family needs Jesus. I'm not going to take that opportunity when they're in my home and I have this opportunity to influence them, this opportunity to get up and make a bunch of noise and rattle the pans and get breakfast going and get the, and wake everybody up. And then I'm not going to. I'm going to make sure it's real uncomfortable to lay in that bed. Let's get to church, y'all. I'm going to show them that this is the most important thing through my life. We do this, mothers, by teaching them all that God has commanded. We do, you have a unique opportunity in the life of your family to train your children in God's ways. They're sponges. They're always learning something. I know that. They're always learning something. What is it going to be? They'll never have a time in their life like when they're little to learn God's ways. And hold on to them for the rest of their lives. Mothers of grown children, when you, when you can do this in other ways, what does it look like? It looks like when they come to you for counsel and for comfort and for advice, give them specific scripture where God addresses the issues of their life. Show them that God is literally the answer for everything. Not my wisdom, but God's. Don't ignore sin and pretend that it's not a big deal. 
All sin is a big deal. Little sins that go unaddressed, they become prison sentences. They become addictions in adults. How many people are in prison now for theft that started because they stole a piece of bubble gum when they were little and mom ignored it? How many people are in prison for violent crimes because no one did anything when they beat up kids at school? How many liars just had parents who were too busy to address the sin in their lives? And it's never too late to do that. Don't enable your children of any age to harm your family or the family of God. Do not pretend that lost children are really saved. A VBS, a walking an aisle, a saying a prayer is not a saved life. A saved life is a changed life. You give, when you do this, when, when you take a child who's so clearly lost, but you tell them and you tell everyone else they're saved, you give God's good name a horrendous black eye. God's children don't act like that. And if he did, he'd address it. You better believe it. And you give false hope to the lost, making think that the cost of their sin is so cheap. It is not. To the church, to this mother, don't tolerate disobedience to God's commands. Just, just as, as little sins here when they're kids add up to prison sentences and addictions later in life, little sins in the life of young believers, and I'm not talking young in terms of age, but youngs in terms of spiritual maturity, little sins in young believers left unchecked become festering wounds. The power of God is the power to save, and it mass manifests itself in a changed life. Let's not pretend that the adulterer is saved. Let's not pretend that the liar and the thief will ever stand justified before God. They will not. And don't buy into the world's lie, because the world wants to tell you this. It's more loving to ignore them and make sure they feel accepted and their self-esteem is good and we don't want them to feel separated from us or have that anxiety. That's love, according to the world. And it's a lie straight out of hell. They'll say it's more loving to ignore their sin than it is to offend them. They might leave. They might never come back. If this is our heart, then our heart has decided that it's better to offend a holy God than it is to offend sinful man. That's a dangerous place to be. Unless sinful man is confronted with the holiness of God, he will never repent from his sin. And he will never cast all of his hope and his trust upon Jesus Christ. If we ignore sin in our midst... We harm the sinner in our midst. If we ignore sin in our midst, we harm the sinner in our midst. We teach them this is okay. We do it by, at best, preventing the humble repentance and progress towards sanctification. Allowing them to continue on in their sin and pile it up. So that when their heart is broken for the Lord, it's broken all the more. Or at worst, we assure them they're, when they're saved, that they're saved, when in fact they may be quite lost. 
If we ignore sin in our midst, we harm the one whose heart is being quickened. That means that's the, the KJV term for their being brought to spiritual life. God is moving in them. They don't have a confession of faith yet because they don't have full faith yet. But God's at move and you can see it. They're excited. God's doing something. But we can quench that. We do it by witnessing to a false hope that they can have sin and salvation. Or worse, we do it by showing them that there is no power over sin in this thing we call salvation that we claim we've received. And so why would they need it at all? In either case, we commit treason. What is treason? It's betrayal of your governing authorities. When we bear false witness and ignore sin in our midst, we commit treason against the kingdom of God by refusing to obey Christ's command to practice the steps of discipline within his church. We disobey a direct command. In the army, they call that mutiny. So why does this matter so much? Many will come teaching a false doctrine, a false gospel which does not depend upon Jesus Christ as our one and only salvation. That's why this matters. They're right there, and the enemy's going to come, and he's going to feed them a lie, and it's going to snatch them away. It'll take the word of truth. We don't want to give Satan the slightest foothold to point the church to the church and say, this is true. To say, Jesus doesn't really save. To say, you don't need Jesus at all. The Bible tells us that men are lost in their sins and transgressions. Hopeless to stand before a holy God. But God, being rich in mercy, loved the world. And he sent his son Jesus to die. To pay the debt for their sins. Becoming sins that they might become what? The righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ and you are the righteousness of God, it must shine through to all the world. They must see that true faith and true repentance, what it looks like in the life of a believer by seeing that the power of the Holy Spirit does transform a wretch into a saint. Your personal walk with God matters because it speaks as loudly as the words that you would ever tell anyone about Jesus. Your walk matters because it speaks as loudly as any word you can say. I completely disagree with this quote, but I'm going to give it to you anyways because it does capture some of the essence of this. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. You ever heard that? Well, that's junk. That's junk. It really puts a low view on the Word of God. But the fact is that your life, your walk, will show whether or not God is real. Our second command is, is watch yourselves. Verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He says, watch yourselves. It means observe yourselves with an S, plural. Be vigilant. Be the neighborhood watch. 
Watch yourselves. The command is to be on guard, not only over your own life, but also over the lives of other members of the family. You would not see... We were in Sam's yesterday, and we're going down the aisle, and all of a sudden this lady cries out, Your little girl's eating the cart. She's got a precious little mouth on the metal, you know, with whatever, you know, germs are all over it. So, so what's that lady doing? That lady's doing what the church should be doing. Hey, don't, she's, that's, that's not good. Don't do that, right? The world has a term for this. They say things like it takes a village to raise a child. The world's got a lot of things wrong. But one irony is they'll take the word of God. They'll take like 80% truth and they'll, they'll twist it with a lie. It becomes palatable. They've got that part right. It takes all of us to raise a Christian. We don't do this by ourselves. We're not meant to be Christian bumper cars. We're meant to be a Christian body, a Christian family. So watch yourselves. Be on guard, not only of your own life, but all the family members. The world would say that, that when you do this, when you're aware of other people's sin and you're addressing it, that you're being intrusive, you're being a busybody, you're being nosy. The world would say that this is unloving. This thinking's permeated the church. Satan does what he's done from the beginning. He takes the word of God and he twists it for his own purposes to deceive and to make it seem to mean something that it doesn't. So John writes to watch yourselves and people in the church will say, no, no, don't watch, don't judge. Because they take it out of context. Exactly as Satan wants them to do. They're convinced that we cannot judge because of Jesus' words taken out of context. But the reality of Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, where that comes from, is that Christ is telling the church not to be hypocrites. To instead remove the sin from their own lives, which would completely fit with ours, right? Love one another by obeying the commands. Remove the sin from your own lives so that you will be able to remove the sin from your brothers. You live a holy life, don't be a hypocrite, and then you'll be fit to help that brother with the speck in their eye. Rest assured, God does not want us running around with specks in our eyes. And how many other scriptures tell us that when we restore a brother who's fallen, that we save them, that we're loving them? How do you restore them without addressing their sin? That's not judgment as the world thinks of it. That's simply addressing God's word and the sin in their lives. And that is being loving, but it's, it's countercultural. Love in God's eyes is to preserve the holiness of his church. Like I said before, young mothers, how do you best love your children? You live out a true faith that's consistent with God's word. Same thing for the church. Love in God's eyes is to preserve the holiness of the church and to help each other from stumbling. Or else to lift one another up once we have stumbled. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 and 10 say it perfectly. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. 
So why do we need to watch out for ourselves? Why is this so important? This is, this is where we look at the indicative. He says, uh, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. What is he talking about? What has the church worked for that could be lost? Souls. Is the church's job, among a few other things, to labor for souls? To go out and to work the fields, to plant the word of truth in people's lives, and to water the word of truth in people's lives, and to de-weed and to keep the birds away. He says, watch out for yourselves so that you don't lose this, what we have worked for, that you may receive a full reward. At any time in the life of the church, there are those who are learning about faith, who are hearing the word and experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The word's being planted in the soil of their lives, and the devil wants to come along and snatch it away before it's taken root. When we fail to watch ourselves and our witness, we open the path for Satan to come pecking. When our witness is that faith in Christ does not actually change lives, we leave bare ground for Satan to come and snatch it. When our witness is that Christ is not enough to satisfy, I need all these other things. I need more money. I need a prettier wife. I need pornography. I need to steal. I need a car. I need what my neighbor has. I need to lie, cheat, steal, kill to get what I want because Christ is not enough. We leave bare ground for Satan to come and snatch the seed of faith out of would-be Christians' lives. Christians, we don't want to lose any. We want to see all be saved. We want the full reward. What is that idea of a reward? I'm going to come to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 to explain what it means. Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? So what will we have before the Lord that gives us hope and joy and a crown of boasting? It's you. It's you, church. It's you, young believers who have been saved. For you are our glory and our joy. This is all about souls. We don't want to lose any that God has entrusted to us. And how can we know if the seed has been snatched up? Because most certainly Satan is very good at this, right? Verse 9, he says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That word abide means to live, to dwell, to remain. Whoever lives in Christ's teachings has Christ. Whoever does not, but goes on ahead, or goes away from it, or goes out beyond it, does not have Christ. The saved life is a changed life. For some, the going on ahead looks like leaving the church. For some, well, because it becomes too uncomfortable for a lost sinner. The church should never be a place where it's comfortable for a lost sinner to remain in their lostness. 
For others, the going on ahead looks like finding a different church where the teaching makes it far more comfortable to be a lost sinner. That's what's happened to the state of the church in America over the last hundred years. We've stopped addressing sin because we're more concerned about self-esteem and attendance and baptismal numbers. And what kind of what kind of, of, of membership can we promote? Can we tell our local association that we have? And so let's not address sin because they probably won't come. It's not popular. And let's let's not address sin in lives because they may leave. Let them leave. They're not supposed to be comfortable in their sin in the church. They should be convicted of their sin shown their need of God because none can come before God holding on to their sin. You must let go of it and cling to the cross. That is our only hope. Do not allow the church to be a place where it's comfortable for the lost to continue on in their sin. The fact is that some should be going on ahead because they don't have Christ. That's, it, that's how it works. We go plant the seed. They're not all going to grow. We go work the field. Not every plant is going to, to bring in a harvest. Don't be afraid of what God says is meant to happen. Be afraid to be a church filled with goats and not sheep. Mamas, watch yourself and your children. Fight for their souls. Fight for their lives. David, make sure Shelby sees this. Fight for their souls. Fight for their lives. You don't want to lose them. You don't want to lose what God has been working for through his church. You don't want to lose your reward, mothers. We don't want to lose our reward, church. Encourage the young mothers in holiness and in raising up their children. Moms, be careful of their friends. Be careful of who has influence in their lives. Don't allow the world to pervert their minds through television, through movies, through video games, through any other vehicle that the world would use to come in and cause them to doubt Jesus Christ and his goodness and his sufficiency, to have another hope, to lead them in the sin that would lead them astray. Protect them. Don't allow the world to plant seeds of doubt and lies through the school system. I worked in that school system for 10 years. I know what I'm talking about. The public school system is the devil's system. Amen. Everything about it is designed to take your children's hearts to reprogram their minds. If your child encounters a Christian teacher, a Christian friend, all glory be to Christ for his grace. We're not going to presume his grace. Parent hard. Parent hard. So that you will have no regrets when your children are grown. The worst fate is not that your child would die young. The worst regret isn't if they become a teenage mother or if they go to prison. 
If they get some piercings or tattoos that you don't care for, that's not the worst regret. The worst fate, the worst regret would be that your reward is taken away, that you would be in heaven with the sheep and your child is standing with the goats. Church, it's the same. Our worst fate is not that they would leave. It's that we'd see this person that we dearly love and they're with the goats. You do know that when Christ says that, he's talking about the church. In the church, there are wheat and tares. In the church, there are good fish and bad fish. In the church, there are sheep and goats. Let's not make it comfortable for a goat to continue being a goat. Parent hard. Satan wants to come and snatch the seed of faith from your child's life while you're not looking. That's why he says, watch yourselves. He's not going to do it while you're looking right at them. He's going to do it when you're distracted, when you're busy, when something else has consumed your own life, when your witness falls into shambles, when you've got a plank sticking out of your eye like a ponderosa pine so you couldn't possibly see to pick the small specks that are festering in your child's life. Our final point this morning is this. Do not invite a false teacher into your home or even greet them. Do not invite a false teacher into your home or even greet them. It comes from verses 10 and 11. It says this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. If anyone teaches that you don't have to obey the commands of Christ... Don't have anything to do with them. Don't allow them in your home. Don't even greet him. If anyone teaches that Jesus never existed, don't. Or that he's not the son of God, don't. Or that Jesus is somehow spirit but not man, don't. Or that if somehow that he only appeared to be a man and to suffer and die but he actually didn't, don't. If they teach that Jesus is not the Christ, don't. Christ is not his last name. That is his title. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. The world loves the idea of Jesus. They call him the historical Jesus. He's the one that's palatable, that's acceptable to their minds. They don't want Jesus who turns water into wine. They don't want Jesus who ascends the cross and dies for the sins of humanity and then raises again from the dead. They don't want that Jesus because that Jesus has to be obeyed and has to be followed. They're all for a Jesus who sacrificially gives of himself. And has all these nice sayings. Don't have anything to do with them. 
because they teach a false gospel. And don't even greet them. Why? Because when you greet them, you take part in their works. That's what it says. When you greet them, when you shake their hand, when you bring them into your house, you take part in their false works. How on earth? I've never said a false word in my life. What do you mean that I am participating? I didn't go to the rally. I didn't hand out the tracks. I didn't have the banners. I didn't, I didn't even promote them on my Facebook page. What are you talking about? How is that? Church, your greeting signals your approval. Young children don't have discernment, right? They only know mom and dad seem to like this person. It's okay, mom greeted them. Mom and dad had them over dinner. I can spend time with them. I can listen to what they say. I can trust them. Sure looks that way to me. Just look at mom and dad. You would never allow a child predator into your home, would you? Not if you knew. Never. The threat is so great. But some of us will allow Joel Olstein. Joyce Meyer, a woke pastor, Sarah Young and her Jesus Calling books into our homes or on our televisions or on our bookshelves. We'll say things like, well, only about 10% of what they say is unbiblical or untrue. I'm interested in the other 90%. Well, no, that 10% is what's dangerous. That's how cults work. That's how false teachers work. They, they, they attract you with the 90 that is truth. It's truth to all humanity because we're all made in the image of God. And then they take that 10% and they lead you away from Christ. This is the trick of the devil. If you have these books, get rid of them. If these people come on the television, turn them off. At the same time, if we don't let them come in through any of these means, why will we let them in through our radios? The most popular Christian music coming out is by, done by churches and their bands. Hillsong, Bethel, Elevation Church, there are many others. These are huge mega churches led by notorious heretics. If I played videos of them preaching, you would demand them to be shut off. But they write beautiful songs. They really do. The musicianship is incredible. It's not me trying to get my way through on the guitar. I mean, these people are gifted. Not necessarily of God. They write beautiful songs that are usually devoid of Christ and the cross. Not always, but usually. So most churches today will sing their songs. We will not. You will never see a song by one of these anywhere in this church because we will not even greet them. We will not let we will not invite them into the house of God in any way, shape or form, giving our approval in any way, shape or form to someone that might go to their website. I don't want one of you to. Oh, you see Hillsong. Let's check. The, I like their music. And you go to their website and you and you you listen to a podcast. And, and the first one wasn't that bad. And the second one, it was a little sketchy, but it wasn't so bad. But he's really appealing. He, he's, he's way more charismatic than our pastor. That guy can really just communicate what Heresy, not truth. His words aren't based on the Bible. People get hooked like that. Satan comes in and snatches the seed of faith like that. Turn them off the radio. Don't listen to them. Don't sing. And their songs are catchy, man. Oh, they're catchy. What's that one? Uh, reckless love. Completely unbiblical. God's love is not reckless. God's love is anything but reckless. But that song will sing, man. You hear it, it's stuck. 
So we're going to be on guard and we will not take part in their wicked works. You made it. We're at the closing. The message is this. Obey all of Christ's commands because in doing so, you truly will love. You will love your children. You will love your family. You will love your God. You will love your church. Disobedience is not loving less. Ignoring disobedience is not loving more. It's actually turning traitor and opening the door to the devil to snatch away those who have not yet planted roots. Calling discipline unloving or saying that willfully ignoring what Jesus says is true is insanity. It's the trick of the devil to redefine what God has said is good, calling it evil, and redefining what God has said is evil, calling it good. And it's made its way into the church. So the church will not practice church discipline. We will not address sin. We will not watch ourselves because we've believed a lie that I'm only supposed to look here. We say things like, my faith is personal. You're right. You do have a personal faith. You must personally believe, but your faith is not private. Your faith is very much public and on display, and it is meant to be a witness to Christ. Mothers, your children are precious to you, but they're more precious to the God who entrusted you with them. Do all that you can. Parent hard to lose none of them. Obey God's commands. Teach your children to obey God's commands. Watch the lives of all your family members. And do not even greet a false teacher. Because in all of these things, souls are depending on your walk.